Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Tuesday, May 8th, and I'm your host, Vincent Chen. Rounding out the cast for today's consumer and retail discussion, we have senior Motley Fool contributor, Asit Sharma, who's beaming into the Fool HQ studio via Skype. Hey, Asit, hope all is well. All is great, Vince. You make that sound so technologically advanced. I almost feel like I'm going to materialize in the studio. <laughs> That'd be cool. At some point, off. maybe, we'll have you hologram into the studio sitting next to me. Um, it'll be a much more fun experience that way for me, at least. Absolutely. So I'm going to thank you right off the bat uh, for bringing the main topic of this episode to my attention. I hadn't been following this story uh, as much, but... Since you brought it up, it's come up in the kind of editorial pod and among some of the other industry focus hosts they've talked about it. So we're reaching outside the consumer and retail sector just for inspiration to kind of kick off this conversation. Uh, and Asit, please chime in with any thoughts or color you want to add as we walk through some of the background for the show and the topic today. But last week, Tesla reported its first quarter earnings for 2018. And there was, of course, a call with analysts to go over the latest results and during the Q&A portion of that call, company founder and CEO Elon Musk, he spent a few minutes answering typical Wall Street analyst questions before he eventually he just lost interest and passed the mic to uh, Galileo Russell, who's a follower of the company, who runs a technolo- uh, technology and investing-focused channel on YouTube. So at one point during the earnings call, Galileo starts asking about Tesla's supercharger network and why the company is open to collaborating with competitors in terms of letting competitors into the supercharger network so they can access uh, Tesla's charging stations. The company has built out, I think, something like over 1,200 of them around the world. And so that's some of the context of where these comments begin. I'm going to read you the quotes from the earnings call. So this is from Galileo. He says, I'm just wondering why that isn't a moat, because As a long-term investor, I feel like the charging infrastructure you guys have built would take years and millions of dollars for another brand to replicate. So I'm just curious about the strategic thinking behind opening that up versus keeping it closed. And Musk responds, first of all, I think moats are lame. I mean, they're like nice and sort of quaint in a vestigial way, but like if your only defense against invading armies is a moat, you will not last long. What matters is the pace of innovation. That is the fundamental determinant of competitiveness. So, lots of Elon Musk fans and Tesla investors here at The Fool, but at the same time, we have lots of fans and followers of the person who coined the idea of a competitive or economic moat, and that's the legendary Warren Buffett. So, as it turns out, uh, this uh, the annual Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting took place last weekend too, and at that event, Musk's comments on moats came up. So Buffett actually responded, and he said, "Certainly, you should be working on improving your own moat and defending your own moat all the time." And Elon may turn things upside down in some areas. I don't think he'd want to take us on in candy. And if you're wondering why candy entered the conversation, it's because Seas Candies is part of the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. Um, they acquired that company. Uh, I think almost 50 years ago. And Buffett has mentioned multiple times before how Seas is very successful, thanks in part to the moat it has from a very strong brand, very loyal customers. So, and Musk, he ends up uh, making some tongue-in-cheek announcements on Twitter that he's going to start a candy company uh, to answer Buffett's challenge. Um, I'm not going to pay too much attention to the, some of the shenanigans that comes up in sh- social media, but that story ultimately leads us nicely to our main discussion for today, where we'll first take a close look at the concept 
of a moat or economic moat before using the candy industry itself to illustrate how wide some moats can still be, even in a time when we think about innovation and disruption taking place you know, across all industries. So break it down for us, Asset. The moat terminology has been around for 20 years. The concept itself, I think even longer than that. What's the core idea behind a moat and why does Buffett really prioritize it when he evaluates a business? First of all, Vince, it's a lovely uh, visual and easy metaphor to grasp. Sure. Um, the idea that your castle has one barrier, the last line of defense, uh, which is this stream of water, which can be quite wide or, or it can be narrow. Uh, it's very easy to translate that into economics. An economic moat is a competitive, competitive advantage or a series of advantages that allows a company to earn outsized profits over time. Uh, basically, over the years, these have fallen into just a few categories, and I'll list um, a few for our listeners. So creating real or perceived product differentiation is said to be a moat, an economic moat. Think of the Big Mac. That's a very different product. And back uh, decades ago when it was first introduced, it created a lot of differentiation in that fast food burger marketplace. Second, um, having low cost, being a low cost leader. Before Amazon started ramping up several years ago, Walmart for decades had an advantage as a low cost retail leader. Yes. Locking in customers by creating high switching costs. Great example of this is Gillette. You often hear about the razor and blade model and how great it is when a customer buys um, a razor then they are locked into buying a company's blades. Gillette enjoyed this advantage. Once you invest in that razor, you don't want to spend in today's dollars another 15 to 20 bucks uh, for the competitor's razor. Uh, you're stuck with the, the blades because you're already, your cost, your investment sunk. Um, we might return to this if we have time this episode because that model, uh, there's a great example of disruption in Dollar Shave Club. Um, and finally, locking out competitors by creating high barriers to entry. For me, I think Apple's a great example of this because the iPhone was a blend of functionality, a brand cachet, really oat high technology when it was first introduced, and that produced a sustainable competitive moat for Apple for several years. So these are the big categories um, and illustrations of what creates what Buffett thinks of as an economic moat. Um, and I just wanted to refer listeners, I, I used a condensed summary from Morningstar.com. Uh, there's so much on moats, and we at Motley Fool write about this, but um, these few bullet points, uh, grab them from Morningstar, and they're, they've built a business around uh, economic moats. It's one of the criteria Morningstar uses to evaluate stocks. Um, very few companies that I like uh, outside the Motley Fool to help investors, but Morningstar is pretty good. Okay. Um, I will say that personally... I like looking at moats as well because, in a way, they manage to present uh, both sides to a story. So, on one hand, they encompass a lot of those advantages that you mentioned that a company can leverage year after year for those outsized profits. Um, you know, a sustainable competitive advantage. But on the flip side, they can also 
uh, at times when there is innovation or disruption, they can highlight the path to success that an upstart player takes advantage of to grow quickly and poach market share. So, you know, an effective moat will not will help a company grow, remain profitable. That will inevitably attract new entrants who might want a piece of that pie. And over time, if an upstart itself becomes a major entrenched competitor, things kind of come full circle as it builds its own, builds out its own moat, only to be challenged eventually by some other innovative, disruptive business. So, uh, we talked about a few examples, um, some theoretical ones, and some real world cases too. Uh, as you were walking through that asset. Um, are there any other big instances or examples of moats that uh, you'd like to call out uh, before we kind of dive into this specific example with the candy industry? Uh, well, let's look at the consumer goods interest uh, industry in general, and sure. then we will like drill down. I think it's a great uh, idea. Yeah. So just grabbing market share in a particular business becomes its own economic mode. We won't talk about Mondelez International too much in this. Uh, episode, but they actually are a serial acquirer of candy brands and uh, chocolate companies. Think Cadbury, think Oreo cookies, and that itself becomes a business that has a moat around it simply because they have the cash to pony up, um, build the market share, which makes it hard for other entrants to come in and disrupt their business. So that's one last sort of model. Uh, within consumer goods, I want to point out before we jump in. Sure. On the question of- and I'll even mention that last week we looked at an industry uh, on this segment for industry focus with wireless carriers that it is an example where you know you have the four major wireless carriers they all essentially share this region right and they've managed managed to build a giant wall around it because they all benefit from the fact that it's a very high barrier to entry for this industry and that it is a massive investment required to build out a nationwide network but each of the carriers if they own if they each have their own castles with moats around them uh, you know sticking with that kind of visual cue they fill them differently because in the past, for example, you know some carriers had early termination fees, long term, uh, long contract terms, high switching costs to prevent customers from changing their service to a competitor. But now you see some smaller competitors like T-Mobile. They've reduced that friction in switching providers. They've shrunk that part of the moat, and in return, T-Mobile has widened its own moat differently by you know using that branding built around, for example, its uncarrier reputation. And so you can see how dynamic all of that can be, and then. Focusing now on the debate between Musk and Buffett, the questions that we're really looking at are, is the moat around candy specifically as wide as Buffett thinks, uh, given his reference to seized candies? And then, can Musk really disrupt the industry enough to overcome that moat if he were to seriously pursue um, an opportunity like that? He was he's, He seemed to be kind of tongue-in-cheek joking earlier, but it'd be interesting to see what somebody um, like him could come up with, given his track record with PayPal, SpaceX, Tesla. But let's put the idea of most of the test. So, is the candy industry actually that tough to crack? What are your thoughts here, Asit? First of all, I want to just point out to listeners how shrewdly intelligent Warren Buffett is. So, he's the one who brought up the idea of Musk challenging Warren or Berkshire Hathaway's moat in candy. He picked the hardest business with maybe the widest moat. And I'm going to walk through why I think that it's a brilliant example. And although there may be for every castle a knight sitting on a charger pondering on the other side of the moat how to get over that moat, mm-hmm. although that may be true, every as you point out, Vince, every castle is different, every moat is different. So to me, let's say, let's just for def- sake of definition say that an established 
candy company of any size is going to have above what we call the middle market in revenue. So my round number is if you can make uh, $20 million annually in revenue or above, that's a good working definition for this argument. Now, can the companies think about it? They sell one of the cheapest commodities on earth to one of the most finicky customer groups you can imagine. <laughs> yep. That is children, and I should say of all ages. So bear that in mind. It typically takes years, actually decades, to establish a candy brand at scale. Uh, I talked about Mondelez, how they have billions at hand to acquire companies. Only yesterday, they forked over half a billion dollars to acquire Tate's uh, cookie company. If you've got those billions, that's great. But if you don't, you've got to establish your brand. And why is it so hard to get to scale in the candy industry? There's a really problematic cycle in candy, and that is the, the, um, the cycle of the fad. A fad can last seven years, it can last 10 years, it can last 15 years. The margins in candy are so thin, they don't really justify investing in fads. So if, let's say Vince and I decide we want to go into business together and form a candy company, we go to Wall Street, despite all our other fantastic credentials and, and what great salesmen we are, <laughs> I think the folks at the other end of the table are going to say, you know, we don't want to put $30 million into this project because this brand that you come up with sounds great, but it may only run for 12 years. And that capital investment is not worth it for us. So few want to risk millions in a capital just to break in via innovation. Um, now, the end user, the, the child or the kid of, of any age, is really capricious in his or her tastes. So to break into this business, you have to copy what works. Here's the catch with that. Kids like what they like. They don't respond to close copies of products the way adults do. Adults are thinking about how much something costs, about whether the ingredients are wholesome or not. There's a whole range of factors that anyone who's an adult will consider. A kid loves a Snickers bar and doesn't want anything different. Um, and maybe a little bit later in the segment, Vince, we'll talk about how old some of these candy companies are. I, it's just another barrier to entry. Yeah. The same suite of candy bars that is in a grocery aisle, which you'll see when you check out, is the same as when I was a kid. And I got a lot of gray on me. I'm sure some of our listeners have an equal amount of gray on them. That hasn't changed except for some innovation. Um, and I'll flip it back to you, Vince. And I'd like to talk about the economics of the industry in just a bit. But those are the major qualitative factors I see. It's extremely difficult to cross the moat that a candy company owns. Yeah, I, I will just say beyond uh, what you mentioned in terms of a very finicky, fickle consumer there, if you're not one of the industry leaders that has established relationships um, with your distributors, you have shelf space already at the store, and you have to navigate so many things in terms of commodity prices, packaging, you know, the distribution to thousands and thousands of different convenience stores, vending machines, grocery stores, to actually reach uh, like a serious scale in the space, like you mentioned, beyond that middle market size, to twenty million dollars or more in revenue, and so that that is that a a really really tough challenge, and then. Uh, Moving on a little bit to some of that innovation disruption element of it in terms of what we're actually seeing in the candy industry and what somebody who's a visionary and has some crazy idea for the industry, what, they'd, what they're what they kind of grappling with. Um, 
we have uh, with this, it's you know slightly more anecdotal evidence, but I'll just start by highlighting for listeners what the candy industry itself considers to be innovation. So I found the 2017 Innovative Award winners from the Sweets and Snacks Expo and the National Confectionery Association. Um, so a few of the nominees for the chocolate category last year were Caramel Chocolate M&M's from Mars, Reese's Crunchy Cookie Cups from the Hershey Company, Oreo Chocolate Candy Bars from uh, Mondelez, which we've tried here at Full HQ, and Kinder Joy from Ferrara USA. So the M&M's actually ended up taking that award, but I don't know about, and I don't know about USA, but Caramel Chocolate M&M's, difference in flavoring, there's really, otherwise, it's not something that's all that different in terms of the final product to me. And if those are what you know the industry nominated as some of the most innovative products, new products for that category, tells me you don't have as, as much space there to kind of disrupt with some crazy new, uh, with some crazy new product. And so it doesn't seem like that would be such an easy step. And while I do think a major consumer goods company could launch an attack on a candy company and eventually overcome part of its moat. I think it comes at really uh, at great cost, and there's no guarantee of long-term success. Um, kind of what we mentioned with in terms of the fads having a finite life, and that would explain why most companies do acquire their candy businesses instead of building them up organi- organically. So, um, I'll pass it back to you uh, to cover, for example, some of the examples, uh, uh, some of the examples that you found with candy companies and how far back their origins reach, and uh, we'll start closing out the discussion with some final thoughts on um, the, the kind of the moat situation here. Sure. So, it, it, interesting, the examples that you cited, Vince, would be familiar to anybody. Uh, we talk about, again, staying power, the difficulty of getting into the business, and how hard, once you're an incumbent, it is to dislodge you. Mars bars, Snickers, Three Musketeers, these are all owned by the Mars Company, all these brands were introduced in the 20s and 30s, that is the 1920s and 30s. That company was founded in 1911. Seas Candy, which is Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway's uh, chocolate company, Chocolates in a Box, founded in 1921. Tootsie Roll Industries, founded in 1896. Hershey's, 1894. Haribo, which if you love jelly beans, um, that's very familiar to you, 1921. And one more, Ferrero, which is the Italian chocolate giant, was uh, formed in 1964. The issue that an entrant has coming into this business and why these companies are so fierce to compete against, one is the economics are extremely difficult. I did a Google search yesterday just for fun on Tootsie Rolls. I came up with a um, five-pound bag of Tootsie Roll Midgey's candy and this is sold off of Amazon. It's 760 pieces for $5.99. Now, bear in mind, this is through Amazon, meaning thereby uh, you're getting it cheaper than you would in the grocery store. Tootsie Rolls Industries makes a 16% net profit each year, but this product is selling for a unit price of 0.007. That means the selling price for each of those midges is 7 tenths of one penny. And beneath all of that, supply chain mastery, manufacturing prowess, distribution expertise, which Vince mentioned that you can imagine, is a whole nother realm of economics expertise. And that is, there are two primary ingredients in the candy industry, sugar and cocoa, 
which are phenomenally hard to keep track of in your own costs. So if you enter this business, you've got to be a master at uh, hedging commodities, hedging cocoa, hedging corn syrup, hedging um, sugar. And you have to be an expert at making sure that what you purchase in quantity gets consumed. If you read the 10K reports, the year-end reports of Hershey's or Tootsie Roll Industries, both of which are publicly traded, you'll find that each year they finish with zero backlog. That means they're ultimately extremely precise at predicting how much product needs to go to distributors so that major companies like Walmart can keep the shelves supplied, but no more. <laughs> so again, this is a business that's so much more complex than it might appear um, on the surface. And just to recap uh, this idea of figuring out what might sell and then being able to parlay that over decades, I mentioned the Ferrero chocolate company in Italy, the, the chocolate empire that's very popular in, in Europe. They made their money, they built their whole business on one product, which was the invention of Nutella, which again is a, is a taste you develop in childhood and for many stays with you throughout your lives a single product. So sometimes to me, it seems like blind luck. You, you come up with um, a great product. Those of you, again, who have a little bit of gray on you will remember the commercials from the 70s and 80s. Um, your chocolate's in my peanut butter, your peanut butter's in my chocolate. So a serendipitous combination of ingredients leads to a hit product that's so difficult to create. In, in real life in terms of experimentation, innovation. If, if that happens to you, run out, get the capital, and then build a company that will last for decades upon decades. But it's, again, not a business that, in my opinion, even if you're Elon Musk, you can just say, hey, I'm going to start a candy company and I will go and challenge the giants. Yeah. So wrapping up our discussion then, um, I think there... Uh, it's good reason why so many people here at The Fool and other long-term foolish-minded investors see a lot of strength and value in companies that have built up economic moats. And we also know that uh, companies should continue to be working to widen their moats or you know, fill it with flames instead of alligators or whatever it is in terms of what differentiates that um, as you know, competition, business environment involves. And even for the candy companies, uh, a mile-long moat might mean little if the castle, for example, itself is shrinking because consumers are moving away from sugary snacks as a result of health and diet concerns. There's a lot of moving pieces there. But um, I think if you're an investor, you're, you're looking uh, for strong companies to add to your portfolio. That's a really good part of the due diligence process to consider You know, what are the challenges um, for that company in terms of competition and what helps them stand apart and is that sustainable over time and does that allow them to uh, generate outsized profits and, and and just sustain that uh, year after year because if they can do that then that's somebody you should be paying closer attention to. Uh, Asa, any final comments from you before we roll up here? Just wanted to reiterate what you're saying, Vince. If you look at Hershey's company, they bought Amplify uh, Brands last year. That gets them an entry into the salty snacks business. Uh, that's the maker of Skinny Pop Popcorn. So moats are always widening. They're always narrowing. Uh, the purpose of people like Elon Musk is to be the native disruptor, that knight on the charger who sits contemplating the moat. The purpose of people like Warren Buffett uh, is to be the owner of the castle inside, figuring out uh, how he can make that moat harder to cross. And that ultimately, that, that dynamic produces great companies to invest in. At the end of the day, 
they each have a point, but on this particular issue, we, we, we hold them to the Twitter um, and Warren Buffett uh, annual, his meeting uh, interview in which he gave the quote that you first read. Uh, I believe that uh, Buffett ultimately is right in the candy business, get a moat, it's yours to keep, just work on uh, widening it. But there are other businesses, as we've seen, especially technology-oriented businesses, what Elon Musk is doing at Tesla, which uh, those moats are inherently susceptible to innovation and being attacked. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Asif, for joining us today. A pleasure. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Thank you for listening. Fool on. 